My fellow warriors. I promise. I promise. I promise. I promise, I promise to be of service I promise to you. To be of service to you. To be of service to you. To be of I service to you. To be of service to, to, you. Be of service to you. And to allow you. And to allow you to be of service to me. To be of service to me. And to allow you to be of service to me. And I will allow you to be of service to me. And tell both you and I to be this demon that assails us. Until both you Until and both I you successfully defeat and this successfully defeat this demon that assails us. Successfully defeat this demon that assails us. Successfully defeat this demon that assails us. I have been given the tools to win. 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 I have all the tools that I need to win this week, and I will win. And I have been given the tools to win. And I will win. And I will win. And I will win. And I will win. We are here to tell you you are not alone. You are not broken. You have not gone too far in the wrong direction. You just tried a different path. And somewhere along that path, you lost a part of yourself. And that addiction, that trauma, that pain came in and it filled the gap. And you had to learn the hard way. You had to grow through adversity. You had to fight to find out who you really are and what you really believe in. See, real change is not about going back. Back there, there are only old habits and hidden pain. Your change comes in the direction you choose to face. So right now, choose to win. Wipe those tears of defeat from your face and get up. We need you. So don't you quit. Don't you dare quit. You keep going. One step at a time, you make that climb and you do it for you. You do it because you are worth fighting for. And one day you're going to look in the mirror and you're going to smile and love the person you see because you will be the person God always intended you to be, a better you, a recovered you. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another week, another episode, another day one of recovery. I'm your host, Cameron Harrison, and I am so glad, so blessed, so stoked to have my guest on the show today. So we were actually, we were talking before this, and it's been about Six months, I think, is is uh, is what you said, Sam. Of we've been trying to make this thing happen, but you are such a you're such a busy guy, just out there being amazing and successful. And we're gonna get into kind of what what you are doing with your life. And I mean, you're you're public speaking. You're going to all these high schools all around the country, and just changing the lives of thousands of people. You are an author. I have your book. It's sitting right here next to me, and uh, it, it's called Just Don't Die. And dude, I, I totally, I'm about to uh, shoot myself in the foot here. I, I didn't actually ask how to say your last name, but I'm assuming it's a Sam Anthony Lucania. Lucania. So you sounded out phonetically the Lucania, which I get often. So don't feel yeah. bad about it. Yeah. Um, but it's a hard C. So it's Lucania. I've got Lucania, Lucania Luciano, Luciano. <laughs> so yeah, you're good, man. I've been hearing it all since grammar school. <laughs> awesome. That's why I go by Sam Anthony in my business. That's why it's Sam Anthony speaks because even when I, even when I spell it out, people still have a hard time with it. They try to do too much with it. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, so I, uh, I first came across your content on, uh, on Facebook. I saw you giving a speech in, in a classroom to, it, it looked like maybe 15, 20 kids. Um, and you actually just told me that was one of your very first speeches that you ever recorded. But the, the message that you shared of, of what you had been through, I kind of just sat there like mouth open, jaw drop, like this is, this is the kind of story 
you don't hear anymore like that, like that, or that, that people don't tell, or the kind of story that doesn't survive the kind of story that doesn't get to the point where you are, where it's someone in complete recovery, someone who has taken back control of their life, who has truly been at a rock bottom that most people couldn't fathom at getting to, and is now in a place of changing lives and being an influence for good. And uh, from that moment on, like I reached out to you and for months we've been, we've been uh, communicating a little bit. I sent you one of my day one shirts, you sent me your book. And uh, it's just kind of been this, even though we aren't constantly communicating this feeling of brotherhood of uh, support. And uh, I've just, I don't know, I felt kind of just nothing, nothing but love and support from you. And uh, I know I've, I've definitely kept you in my, my thoughts and prayers as I've seen you go into different high schools and areas kind of hoping the best for you. So Thanks for being on my show. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Anytime I have an opportunity to share from any platform, whether it's a stage of five people or 500 or a podcast or somebody just reaching out to me in a DM saying, hey, I need some help. Um, I I'm humbled that they would actually come to me because for a long time in my life, I didn't feel like I had anything to offer. Yeah. And I find it, you know, ironic or is it odd or is it God that what I actually have to offer now is some of the worst stuff that's ever happened to me. And I like to say that, you know, God took the ugliest, nastiest, filthiest, and dirtiest parts of my life. And he didn't just fix them because that would have been too easy, right? right. He actually found a way to turn them into something beautiful. And, um, you know, that's what I do now. And I try to use my experience as a lesson for somebody else. And at the end of the day, I mean, whether we're talking the arrest, the overdose, the relapse, the jail time, if somebody can learn from my mistakes and not have to make their own, then all those things were worth it. Yeah. And, and what you just brought up there, you know, so uh, as, as my listeners may have just gathered, we're not really talking necessarily about pornography addiction or sex addiction, which, which has been the primary theme of this podcast. But um, I mean, we're getting into the, the, the hardcore, like insanely addicting um, hard drugs, alcohol uh, being arrested. So, so we'll get into to that a little bit. What what surprised me as I was as I was reading your book and I went back through it just uh, over the past couple of days, knowing that this interview was coming, I thought about it and I was like, man, from from the sounds of it, this whole thing kind of started because you wanted to be accepted and you were willing to do whatever it took just to be accepted or to feel welcomed by by people. So when they when they offered you alcohol, when they offered you drugs, you know, you didn't want to disappoint. You wanted to be liked, and so you did it. It would, would, I mean, would you agree with that or? Yeah, it was for, it was for a few reasons. And that was definitely one of the main ones, you know, growing up, you know, I said this to somebody once and their response was surely that wasn't true. And what I said was growing up, I wasn't funny. I wasn't popular. I wasn't handsome. I wasn't charming. I wasn't athletic. You know, I, it's just, I didn't really know where I fit in. And when I said that, they looked at me and they said, oh, I'm sure that wasn't true. And maybe they're <laughs> right. But the reality is because that's how I felt about myself. It was my truth. It was my reality. Yeah. And, you know, I often talk about gateway behavior over gateway substance. I'm never really interested in what you're doing, whether what you're doing is self-harm or pornography or smoking or taking pills or drinking. I'm more interested in why you're doing it. And it's always the why. And it usually comes down to some sort of either willing, trying to get accepted, 
uh, or trying to self-medicate. I've got this feeling right here. And when I watch porn, that feeling goes away. I've got yeah. this feeling right here. And when I take pills, that feeling goes away. I've got this feeling deep down inside. And the only way I know how to get rid of it is to self-harm, right? And, and all that is what I refer to as gateway behavior. And my behavior goes back to well before I took my first drink, you know, whether it was breaking windows or making fun of somebody else or lighting off fireworks or stealing something from a store or taking a drink all in a means to, to have somebody look at me and just get a, just get a small second of acceptance on their behalf. It made me feel good. And, and those little things all progressed into what I told myself I would never be, you know, all, all the horrible things that nobody ever wants to have happen to them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, whether it was trying to be accepted or trying to self-medicate, I did a lot of things in my life for a lot of reasons. And looking back, it was never about what I was doing, but always why I was doing it. And the why was the acceptance and the self-medication. Yeah. And, and, and for me, I mean, I, looking back on, on my behavior, I was, my mind was just, I wanted to numb out. And I know for like alcohol and drugs and stuff that, that numbing feeling of not having to feel those feelings anymore, you know, to just get a brief moment of escape from reality. I acted happy all the time. I acted uh, positive and outgoing and athletic. And I, and I did all these things and they were all a distraction from the death I was feeling inside of me. And so I covered it all up um, with, you know, just more and more aggressive pornography use that, that led to the, the multiple affairs and, and everything that happened that nearly destroyed my marriage. So um, yeah, I, I totally get that. Yeah. So when you say numbing, you know, I, I've been addicted to a lot of things, you know, whether it was a pack of Newports a day or a wake and bake weed smoker, uh, you know, taking pills, drinking, pornography. Um, I, I was addicted to all those things. But the hardest thing I've ever had to quit was the prescription pills, you know, the Xanax, okay. the Adderalls, the Oxys. But I always say it was never about going up or going down. It wasn't about getting high or getting low. It wasn't about anti-anxiety meds or anti-pain meds. It was all anti-SAM medication. You know, yeah. I wasn't trying to get up or get down. I just didn't want to be right here anymore. Yeah. Just didn't, didn't want to be experiencing what you're experiencing anymore. Yep. Yeah. So you're, uh, I, I, I like to ask my guests, what would you kind of say was your rock bottom? And, and I, I had a guy on, on last week, Luke Gordon, that he talked about, he's like, it, it was, I had so many rock bottoms and I was like, so it was like you were falling down a cliff and every time you hit a ledge on the cliff, you actually rolled off and then just kept falling. And it just, I like it like cartoonish, like Wiley Coyote, just yeah. falling down and hitting bottom after bottom after bottom. And he said, I don't know if there ever truly was a, a final bottom. Um, but I, I will present the same question to you. What, what would you kind of say was like that absolute rock bottom that you're like, okay, it's, it's a uh, give in and die or turn things around for good because I can never go back to this. Yeah. I mean, when people ask me, you know, what is the rock bottom? I almost have to playfully giggle and say, which one, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I can go all the way back to when I was 14, maybe rock bottom was getting arrested for selling weed in high school and having my father look at me and saying that he was disappointed in me. I was a disgrace to the family and I wasn't even a good drug dealer for a yeah. lot of people. That's enough. It yeah. really is. Uh, maybe it was getting arrested at the age of 21, 22 and, you know, doing an overnighter in Irvington, New Jersey, which is a jail that no white boy wants to be in, right? Okay. And maybe <laughs> yeah. that should have been enough. Uh, maybe it should have been getting arrested 
in my mid twenties uh, for prescription fraud, realizing that, okay, you know, Sam, when is enough going to be enough? Uh, it could have been the overdose in 2013. Um, it should have been the arrest in 2015, right? Um, you know, at the end of the day, all those things were definitely bottoms for me. Yeah. Um, but if I have to wrap it up, um, what the real bottom for me is in any relapse is the disappointment that I have for myself and that I have for my wife. Because my wife thinks so highly of me and she believes in me and she knows what I'm capable of when I am physically fit, mentally fit, and spiritually fit. But when something happens and I have that relapse, the disappointment that she has, because she understands addiction. She's a medical student. She's a nurse. Yeah. She's been to the meetings with me. I mean, hell, she helped me write the book, but she's never struggled with addiction. And if you never actually struggled with it, you'll never truly comprehend how powerful it actually is and how after you've been in jail and been arrested and disappointed the wife and almost died literally and figuratively, how could you possibly think that taking a drink is a good idea? And that's just what addiction does if you don't find a way to manage it one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time. So to wrap it up, I mean, my rock bottom is always the disappointment that I have for myself and for my wife. So, so you talked about physically fit, spiritually fit, and mentally fit? Yes. Okay. That's my little um, triad, triad of recovery. I've got okay. to all three things in succession at all times. All right. I, I want to jump into that a little bit. Um, yeah. So so let, let's uh, let's actually go over these three points here. So physically fit. So what, what do you do in order to maintain that? Like, are you talking physically fit of like, I just make sure I get some sunshine every day? Or are you hitting like actual workouts? What are you doing to take care of your body, the physical part of your body? So for everybody, it's going to be different. So growing up, I wasn't an athlete. You know, I played a little bit of street basketball with my friends, but I wasn't on a sports team. I didn't do JV varsity. Um, I worked out a little bit in my 20s and stuff like that, but I was going to the gym really for vanity reasons. Right. Um, you know, I wanted a six pack so girls would look at me with my shirt off. I wanted yeah. bigger biceps so guys might be intimidated by me. I was working out for all the wrong reasons. And right. I realized that when I work out to look good, instead of feel good, I usually don't achieve either. You know, I usually feel like crap and hurt myself and you know, I'm just not happy. When I work out to feel better, instead of look better, I actually achieve both. So when I say physically fit, I know not everybody likes to go to the gym. So I'm also a personal trainer. I became a personal trainer back in 2013 um, because I felt that I, I was always interested in it, but I was always too busy getting loaded to actually study for my CPT. So I became a personal trainer in an effort to learn more for myself and to help other people. So okay. my personal physical fitness, I love to work out. I love to go hiking. I love bike riding. I love going for long walks. I'm not a huge runner, um, but I will do it. Um, I love playing tennis. I love shooting hoops with my kids. Uh, I love rock climbing. Uh, it can look like anything though. Um, and right. a lot of people get intimidated by the physical fitness because they don't want to go to the gym. That's cool. I get that. Um, going, it doesn't mean that you have to be a bodybuilder. It doesn't mean right. you have to be a fitness model. It doesn't mean you have to have bulging biceps and a squat booty, but you have the importance of getting your body moving yes. and getting those endorphins going and getting that adrenaline going and getting your heart rate up and sweating. There's something that that does for you mentally. So when I work out now, I work out to feel better. I don't work out. So my clothes fit better. Um, but usually that's a nice side effect 
of me trying to work out to feel better. Yeah. Um, so I do a lot of different things. I always switch it up. You know, as a personal trainer, people joke around like, oh, what are your goals? Like you try, like, I'm not trying to bench the most. I can care less how much I squat. I just want to make sure that I'm never too tired or too injured to take care of my wife and play with my kids. Those are my goals. Perfect. And what, what you said, you just have to get your body moving. That That's something we actually talk about in our recovery groups all the time is especially, I mean, for, so for pornography addicts, uh, to take it back to that side of things, sitting in front of a computer screen is where you start to numb out or sitting on your phone and dead scrolling through Facebook, through Instagram, whatever it is, that's where the triggers start to happen. That's where you can start to slip into that numbing state of mind. And that's where you're susceptible to that temptation to relapse. Yeah. And so the get your body moving thing can be something as simple as if you're on a couch, like and that drill sergeant in your head yells, drop and give me 20. You know, you, you do, you do 20 pushups just to get your heart pumping. You get up and you walk around the block once. It doesn't have to be this insane amount of like, okay, well now I got to go change my clothes, go to the gym for an hour and a half, get my sweat on. I'm going to be sore for the next, like that's discouraging. And that that's not going to do it for you. But if it's just go out and get some sunshine, go instead of having lunch at your kitchen table, grab a blanket, grab your same lunch, go, go sit on the front yard, backyard, go to a nearby park. But being physically, uh, I guess, functionally physical is, is what I would say to, to kind of, like you said, put out those, uh, those endorphins from the brain that those natural chemicals that allow us to start to reconnect with ourselves and put away the numbness that we, our addictions want us to feel. Yeah. Cause um, I, and I just, I can look at when I'm physically fit and the actions that I take and the energy and the effort that I put into making sure I get that workout in, whether it's in my garage, doing a 15 minute run, cause that's all I have time for, or actually getting my headphones and changing my clothes and going to the gym. Yeah. The, the intention behind that versus the lack of effort and lack of intention when I'm using, when I'm drinking, when I'm caught up in that other zone, I mean, it's night and day. You yeah. know, and you're either going to be consumed by one or the other, but one is a good consumption and one obviously has much more negative effects on you. Well, and, and there's this huge difference in, in, like you said, the energy that you're able to give to other people when you actually take care of yourself and put forth just a little bit of energy to care for yourself. Then it's like, oh, wow, like I was able to play with my kids a lot better. I handled dinner and bedtime. I gave my wife a break. I was able to go out with some friends. I was able to go play pickleball, you know, like what, whatever it was. Um, but you find this like renewed energy. So you're like, I'm using more energy, but at the same time, I'm being gifted with the energy to give to other people. as oh, well. Absolutely, man. You can't pour what's the old saying. You can't pour anything out of an empty cup. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to take care of other people, you got to take care of yourself first. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a very simple thing to do, but simple doesn't mean easy. Yeah. And, you know, I have no shame and, you know, taking 45 minutes away from my family to work on myself if it means the other 23 hours, they're going to get hundred percent of me, you know, and there's, yeah. that's, and that's where people kind of get confused that, you know, that self-care is not selfish. If it means that you're going to give back more by giving to yourself first, then that's what you need to do. Dude, I just, I, just, I got chills because you just like quoted something I've said in like the last five episodes straight that self-care is not selfish. Mm-hmm. And, and so like just that reinforcement. Yes. Like same page. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. 
Um, that's where a lot of people get that relapse comes in like, oh, well, I can't, I can't leave my wife tonight because I got to go to a meeting. Well, dude, if you don't leave your wife tonight to go to a meeting, your wife is going to leave you if you relapse. So yeah, which one's more important? You got to think about it. Yeah. And you also talked about the percentage you can give to give to your family um, to be able to give them 100%. Uh, Brene Brown, who I'm, I'm sure you're probably yep. very aware of. Yeah. So she talked about when her and her husband, when she would go on trips and stuff that they would text each other and they would just send a percentage. That, that was all it was like. So she'd be on her way home from the airport and she'd be like 5% and he'd be like, 80%. I'm good. You come in, do your bubble bath, you know, light some candles, whatever you need to do. I got this. And there were times that she'd be like, I'm 10%. He's like, I'm 8%. And she'd be like, okay. So now we need to figure out like how we're going to just take care of ourselves and make sure that we can not react for the children. But like that mm-hmm. understanding of what you're able to give is another huge factor in that, that mental wellness, that, that recovery mindset of understanding like, I like, I come home from work some days and I'm like, Katie, I just, I need 15 minutes to go up and just lay down and focus on my breathing. I'm not, I'm not being selfish. I'm not going to disappear the rest of the day, but I need a minute to detox. And what's funny is if I go up and I pull out my phone, I come down worse than I was before. But if I, if I plug my phone in down there in the kitchen, I go up to my room, I just close my eyes and I just do my breathing exercises or meditate for a little bit. I'll come down and I'm good for the rest of the day. So yeah, just recognizing where your battery's at. at I wish more people would be more intentional about doing things like that. Even though I I still feel bad because I'm like, here she is making dinner. The kids are all running around like crazy. And I'm like, I want to help. So let me get to a place that I can. And it's not, I don't need a long break, but let me get to a place that I can help. Because once I can help, I will really help versus begrudgingly mumbling, yelling at the kids, reacting, all that stuff. Yeah. So it'd be much more productive with that yeah. 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the other part of the triangle, uh, spiritually fit. Yes. So you actually did not, you didn't, you didn't, I guess you grew up in the Catholic faith. I did. Yeah. So I was raised in the Catholic church, which was more of a formality. Right. Um, my parents put upon me, you know, I was baptized, confirmed CCD, CYO, went to church on, you know, Easter and Christmas and got my card punched. Um, and once I got to the age of, I was able to look at them and say, I'm not going anymore. And they didn't yeah. push back. I stopped going. Okay. And, and it wasn't until, and what I love about this in your book, and again, guys, you, you gotta, you gotta read this book. You gotta read this book. It's amazing. Uh, I love how you got back into the church. Um, it may not have been for the the right reason, but it was for the perfect reason. And uh, <laughs> God knew if he was going to get me get if God knew if he was going to get to me the way that he needed to, that he needed to put a good woman in my life. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I actually it was kind of at a very unique time because it was my first experience with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I tried to you know do the twelve step recovery thing, and my sponsor at the time was a Christian. And most of the 12 step program was actually derived from the book of James, even though, and most of their language, all of their language, they say, God of your understanding. Um, but it's a faith-based program, right? Yeah. And he was a Christian. So he dove deeper into that God of your understanding. And obviously our God was God, Jesus. And he was very, um, you know, deliberate with, you know, the, the language that he would use with me and even pull out actual scriptures and stuff. And he invited uh, Rachel and I, we were just dating at the time, it's my wife now, to go to church with him. And my idea of church 
was pews, stained glass windows, yeah. arcing cathedrals, priests in robes with, you know, garments and scarves. And, you know, that's what I was used to. And this church was a non-denominational Christian church. It was a mobile church that met on site and the auditorium of middle school. So yeah. I walk into the auditorium of middle school and I'm like, I don't get this. And <laughs> they're singing and jamming. And the guy that's leading worship has tattoos. And I'm like, I don't get this. And then my pastor comes on stage and he's my age and wearing jeans and a polo. And I'm like, I don't get this. And I just, I didn't understand, but I liked the message that I heard. And I, I was falling in love with the girl and I wanted to come back, but I, I wanted to make sure I was coming back for the right reason. So I went to the past and I was like, Hey man, I, I kind of like what's going on here. I want my relationship with God to, to be more than what it is, but I've got questions. And he met with me week after week and we sat down and we wrestled with all the tough topics that a new or, you know, redevouting Christian might come up with like, uh, you know, lust and profanity and sobriety and all those things, living together before marriage, what my uh, girlfriend and I were doing at the time. And, you know, he gave me biblically based answers for all of my challenging questions. Uh, he gave me some literature to read, A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And after meeting with him and listening to the music and reading the book, I made a decision to give my life over to Christ. And I got baptized again as an adult. Call, call me born again, whatever you want to say. Uh -huh. And um, whether it's Jack Church or a different church, church and my relationship with God has been, I mean, a pinnacle part of not only my marriage, but my recovery as well. And, you know, that's, I kind of like to say that that spiritual fitness, mental fitness, and physical fitness is kind of like a three-legged chair. Yeah. And if you ever took away one leg from a three-legged chair, it doesn't stay up very well. Nope. And that's why I say I kind of have to have all three of them firing on all cylinders at the same time, because when one starts to slip, I become unstable. Well, and, and, and what I love about, um, about incorporating religion, Christianity, I mean, what, whatever, whatever your God may be, as long as it is a, a God that is encouraging you to, to do good, to take care of others, to take care of yourself, to, to love, to not judge things like that, that in and of itself, and, and especially Christianity, what I love about Christianity is recovery and Christianity are, are one in the same, because if you take, uh, what, what we believe in as the atonement of Jesus Christ, that is basically all about the ability to, um, to try again, the ability to find forgiveness, to not live in the past in your sins, but to find a fresh start after having repented and be able to say, okay, I can start again. I can try this again. I'm not just because I made that mistake. Doesn't mean that's the end of the line for me because, and that's what's so beautiful about that atonement is it doesn't matter how far off that path you go. It doesn't matter how far you think you've gone or how dark your life around you is. The second that you say, you know what? I want God back in my life. I want, I want the message of Christ and his atonement back in my life. As soon as you do that, the light will turn on, the direction will change, the feelings will start to heal. Even if it's just good vibes, if that's what you want to call it, the second you start making those better choices that you know intrinsically within yourself, that value system that your parents tried to teach you that said, hey, just, just try and be a good person. Try and love other people. Try not, you know, don't judge too harshly. As soon as you start leaning back into that value system, 
you're going to feel that peace that comes with those decisions. Mm -hmm. And so, and that, that's what I love about incorporating religion into recovery, because I mean, think of all the Bible stories. Those are stories of recovery, men that, that were lost and then that were called of God and changed their lives over to a different way of living in order to influence other people's lives. If that is not the life of Sam Anthony, I don't know what is. If that is not the life of Cameron Harrison, I don't know what is. Yeah. And, and so the best I, part is we don't have to start over. We can continue from the experience we have, Yeah, you know, and I, whether it's you're coming to your Christianity or coming off of a, a relapse, um, you know, you're, you're not, you don't start over from scratch every time something happens. True. You continue with the experience that you have, but you continue as a change with a changed heart, with a changed soul, with a changed mind. Yeah. Did I say start? I did say start over. No, huh? no, no, you didn't. I'm just reinforcing <laughs> okay. that the, the redemption part of it. And that's one of the reasons that I don't practice traditional recovery anymore. Like AA and 12 step uh -huh. is because I kind of got tired of if, and when somebody comes back with a relapse, resetting, you got to turn your chips in. You got a new sobriety date, sit yeah. in the back and shut up. You don't know anything. You threw it all away for nothing. I'm like, uh, wait a second. I just earned a lot in this last five years of recovery. You can't take that away from me. Yeah. I'm not starting over. I'm continuing from experience. You know, every relapse was a huge lesson for me and for a lot of people, um, which is one reason I've kind of pulled away from traditional recovery. And I kind of, um, continue with my own mental, spiritual and, and physical aspect. Yeah. I actually, uh, I, I have a guy that reached out to me in one of my groups that he wasn't showing up very much. And, uh, I could tell, you know, just his demeanor and everything was just kind of down. And I reached out to him personally. I was just like, Hey, like, is everything okay? And he's like, dude, I'm, I'm so sick of coming to these meetings and reporting, you know, uh, a three and a zero for, for my numbers. And mm -hmm. I hear these guys with numbers in the five hundreds, the one thousands. And he's like, it makes me feel so inadequate. And I was like, okay, well, make you a deal. Uh, because the, the numbers are only there in the program that I'm in. They're only there for graduation purposes. They're, yeah. they're not there to determine your worth or your value. So I was like, so when you come, you don't report numbers anymore. Totally fine. You can send them to me individually and then just answer the question of why you're awesome or why you're still fighting. That That's all I will ask of you. But as far as your numbers go, those can remain a secret between you and me and nobody else has to know. So you don't have to feel that inadequacy or that comparison because who you are as an individual is an amazing guy that's going through a really hard time. And you don't, you don't have... Like why pile on an additional battle of comparing yourself to other people? So I, I love that you... Yeah. Uh, I've, I've never been that. a huge fan of the numbers game. And I've been in plenty of meetings where I've seen a guy or a girl with 10, 15 years. And they're like, oh my God, it's such a hard day. I couldn't even walk down the wine aisle at the grocery store. And I had to go to three meetings yesterday. I'm like, dude, if that's what 15 years looks like, I'm not interested, you know? <laughs> so I, I've never been big on the numbers. I'm big on, you know, what is it that you're doing right now? Do you have something that I have or want right now, you know, that's the more important part. And it's really the only thing that we do it with is, is programs of recovery. You know, we don't do it with any, how long have you been working out for consistently? Well, if I work out, you know, every day for six months straight, and then I take a week off because I go on vacation and I eat pizza and cupcakes, does that negate everything I've earned in that six months? And now I have to start over or am I just going to continue? 
you know, it's the, but we only do that in programs of recovery. And I just, I never really understood it. I almost think almost like Instagram was uh, at one point talking about getting away of, you can see how many likes somebody else's post has. I almost wonder if the program would be more successful if nobody knew how much time anybody had this way mm. we all looked at each other as equals yeah. instead of, well, no, I'm not going to listen to that person because they've only got 30 days. I've yeah. heard some great shares from people with 30 days. Yeah. I was going to say, let, let the truth speak for itself. Yeah. You know, and not don't let the numbers uh, determine the truth. That's just my opinion. I don't think they're going to change a hundred year program over, uh, <laughs> over my opinion. <laughs> so let, let me ask you one more question on this uh, faith-based uh, part of the, of the triangle. Do you feel like, um, or I guess, what would you say to those people who may be not, who may not be very religious or may not be of the Christian denomination? I mean, is recovery possible without religion, without Christianity, oh, without, I know, I know plenty of atheists, plenty of agnostics that have gotten sober and they live very happy lives. So, um, so what, what's, is, I mean, what's kind of the key there then? Like, because I mean, I mean, they're obviously working something out. They found something else that works for them and whether it's the going to the meetings every day, or, you know, maybe they, I know plenty of people that have just turned to fitness and that's worked for them. At the end of the day, everybody's story is completely different. Everybody's journey of recovery is going to be completely different. I've seen people that go to three meetings a day, every day for five years straight. Honestly, dude, I think that would kill me. I, I don't think I'd last a month doing that. I know people that if they worked my program of recovery, they probably wouldn't last a month doing it. And that's okay. When it comes to a newcomer in the very beginning, and if we're being very specific with alcohol and drugs, I always say, get sober first, then we can find out what your God is, who your God is. I can preach. I don't care what I'm, I could preach to you, Allah. I could preach to you, Buddha. I could preach to you, Christ. I could preach to you, Chris Smith. If you're under the influence, you're not going to hear any of it. Get sober first, and then if you want to get into the details of who God really is, we can talk about that once you have a clear head. But do pray to whoever you need to pray to to keep the needle out of your arm that day so I don't have to worry about being on the road with you and my family. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. You know, and if somebody can get sober without finding Christ, good for you. I'm, whatever, whatever's keeping the bottle out of your hand that day, more power to you. I don't think I could do it without it. But again, that's just my story. Yeah. And then uh, you used a, used a key word there that I, I, I just want to focus on. So what is, what is your definition of abstinence versus sobriety? Abstinence is a fallacy. That, yep. is, that, that is like my biggest thing is like the, the push for abstinence. I mean, it, you might as well hang. You, you ever been to the carnival and they have those like hang for two minutes and you win $300? You ever yeah. seen those? That's yep. what I feel like abstinence is, is that. Um, not only are you not going to make it, but I mean, you're just going to hurt yourself or you're just going to, you're just going to fail. And the more you try and do it, the weaker you're going to get. So, uh, whereas sobriety for me, I feel like is a lifestyle change, but I don't, do you have a, do you have a different, I, again, my personal belief is I think that you can refer to yourself as sober or being in a program of recovery or working towards your sobriety as long as you are doing something on a daily basis to make sure you're not doing anything that's going to intentionally harm somebody else and you're working on yourself to make yourself better. And if that's some form of harm reduction, meaning that you've got to do MAT or you've had to downplay how much it is that you're drinking or using or however it is that you need to look at it 
I don't believe that sobriety is just complete abstinence because I think a lot of people drive themselves deep into the gates of insanity and hell trying to do that. And there's too many people that'll say, if you use mouthwash last night, you're not sober or oh, you, know, if you, 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 you had to take medicine after your surgery. So you've got to turn your chips and that's nonsense. Yeah. You know, I personally believe that is absolute nonsense. I'm not giving people a jail, get out of jail free card, but I also don't think that if you've been sober for, you know, two, three, five, ten years and something happens and you slip up and have a drink or even a couple of drinks or even a one night bender, that that changes the person that you really are. All that does is it doesn't make you not sober. It makes you human. That's all it does is it makes you human. And the most important part is, do you recognize where you got off, where, what, what was off? What happened that day? Why did I do what I did? And how can I make sure that it doesn't happen again? You know, that, that's the way I look at sobriety. And a lot of people don't like that, you know, and and that's okay. You know, if, again, you have to do what's going to keep you sober and keep you happy. um, And I have to do what I personally believe works best for me. I've been in and out of the program since 2004. I've been doing a recovery thing a long time for 18 plus years now. I've been sitting in meetings, reading the big book, calling sponsors, you know, going through group therapy, IOP, one-on-one counseling. You know, I've done it all. My longest periods of sobriety are when I was not going to meetings. There's something about, you know, you know, people say, well, uh, I don't care if you haven't had a drink in three years. If you're not going to meetings, you're not sober. Why? Yeah. Who said that's the rule? That's your belief. And that's fine if that's your belief, but you can't pass that upon everybody. Yeah. And at some point it's almost like, well, you can get to a place where being around people that are constantly talking about their relapses can be triggering for you. That if you've gotten to your, if you've gotten your life to a place where you're like, I don't hang out with people that drink or I don't hang out with people that talk about pornography. Um, I I've dedicated my life. Like I'm very invested in my church community in my family these other things that used to be triggers for me and used to pull me into my addiction are no longer a part of my life. Now, the only thing that brings up my alcoholism, the only thing that brings up pornography are the meetings that I go to, yet I've gone multiple years. I I can absolutely see where that would get to a point where you're like, right now, the meetings are not what are best for me. What are best for me are dedicating myself to uh, the way that I'm helping my family. I'm, I'm helping myself. Um, I'm focusing on, on religion. I'm focusing on, you know, and, and I know the program well enough to, and, and myself well enough to recognize, okay, I've been triggered. I I'm, I'm feeling this chemical spill uh, and the desire to relapse. I know who, I still know who to call. Mm -hmm. I still know who to turn to. I can still drop. Yeah. I agree with that. 100%. There's plenty of times where I've been in a super, super high place. I mean, like natural high on life, things are going awesome. You know, that, that triad of fitness and I go to a meeting and I leave the meeting worse than when I went in and I just didn't get anything out of it. And then what's going to happen is the person's going to come in from over here and they're going to say, well, if you're not getting anything out of the meeting, that's when you should go and try to contribute something to the meeting. And yes, to an extent they're right. But at the same time, with traditions and steps, sometimes you're limited as to what you can or supposed to say in a meeting. And depending on the program that you're working, you might not be able to, I can't go in there and talk about Jesus and faith and spiritual, you know, and all those and physical, they're going to be like, well, those are outside issues, you know? So it's, it's, it's challenging. I think the program needs, 
I mean, I, I think some of these older programs need a little bit of restructuring because what's happening today is there's so many people that are being dumped into the same meeting um, because the courts are sending them yeah. or because, you know, whatever the reason they're there and, and they're being diluted down with these mixed messages and they're trying to follow 85 year old traditions that just aren't really applicable to today. And if you're just a straight up good old fashioned drunk, yeah, they might work for you. But for some of these younger kids that are hybrid and they're smoking K2 and they're taking pills and they're drinking and they're vaping and there's the lust involved and the social media dynamic, like they're, the, those 12 traditions and steps might not be exactly what they need. So now what do we do for that person? You know, and there's other avenues like smart and things like that. But yeah, no, there definitely, I think there needs to be more options when it comes to recovery and support groups and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it's definitely something that I think people are, it's, it's hard to research. It's hard to find what works for you. And most importantly, it's hard to take that, that first step to say, am I actually going to try an experiment to find something that's going to work for me? Yeah. Um, and, and just as a, as a quick disclaimer, um, now I, I know my past self. So this is speaking from, and this thought came to me because I'm like, if I were listening to this back when I wasn't in a place of recovery, I totally would have just listened to that little snippet of the conversation and given myself permission to not go to um, a recovery meeting. So that don't take that as permission to like, oh, I, I, I don't need to go. They won't, they won't work for me. No, definitely try it out. Try and find what works for you. Do like, like you just said a second ago, do your research. I mean, researching alone is an action step toward recovery. Trying uh, to find- I went I, to meetings for 15 years before yeah. I made the decision that they weren't working for me anymore. They worked yeah. for me for a long time. Yeah. They really did. And I encourage that. I still, it's one of the first places I send people to. You got to go and you got to find out if it's for you. And if you go to one meeting and you don't like it, that doesn't mean that you stop there. Go to a couple different meetings. Because guess what? There's been a lot of churches that I've been to that I didn't like. I didn't stop going to church. I just continued until I found a church that I liked. Yeah. I've met with counselors that I didn't connect with. I didn't stop counseling. I continued until I found a counselor that I like. So I agree with you 100%. It's definitely not a get out of jail free card. You yeah. do have to find out what works for you and what doesn't work. But the only way you will find if something's not for you is to try it in the first place. You got to put in the work. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay. The last little, uh, the, the last part of this triangle, the mental fitness. So mental fitness dedicated to recovery, mental fitness dedicated to education toward passion projects, D, all of the above. What do you do for mental fitness? All the above. So mental fitness for me. So the physical fitness falls into the workout category, movement, endorphins, heartbeat yeah. there. Um, the spiritual uh, side of it, the spiritual fitness would fall into um, the church community, the music that I listen to, what I watch on TV, the people I surround myself with, the meditation, um, the personal, the personal time, the quiet time, the breath work, things like that. Yeah. The mental fitness would kind of fall into the recovery groups, the counseling, the mentorship, um, the listening to uh, inspirational podcasts on recovery and motivation and inspiration uh, and things like that. So that's what I say when I say the mental fitness part. Um, it's the reading, it's the podcasts, it's the talking with mentors. Uh, the mentor should be somebody that has something that you want 
And I'm not talking about the car they drive or the clothes that they wear, but more along the lines <laughs> of the way that they carry themselves. If they've yeah. been through a hard time, how did they get through it? And what do they do to stay out of going back to that area, the way that they speak, the way they treat themselves, the way they treat other people. Um, you know, those, I think, kind of encompass the, the mental fitness aspect for me. I, I completely agree. And I would even say like, well, just the, the way that you described all that just now, it almost uh, as if you were to take that three legged bar stool and spin it really fast, you would see it almost blur into kind of one pillar because mm -hmm. the podcasts that have a good message to it is both mental and spiritual. Sure um, and then, you know, going, going to the gym. And if you're, if you're listening to something positive while you're going to the gym, not only are you taking care of yourself, you are also mentally enhancing yourself that, and working out is good for your spirit and your body. So, yeah. So all these things, though, they may have their own individual pillar. They all kind of intermingle with one another as well, which they I think sure is, is, is really cool. So they all um, awesome. Thank you for, for breaking that down for us. Um, okay, I want to I want to jump into another part of the book. I think this was the part that it was hardest for me to to read about and to comprehend. I guess not not comprehend, but um, like it was just painful to live that with you through this book. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment that I mean, your life was going great. You had just been married. You're, I mean, you had a full-time job, you were providing, presiding, protecting, you, you were, you were sober for a long time. Um, and then it came down to kind of that, that moment where you had some friends offer you a couple beers and that, that peer pressure kind of pushed you into, you know, like, you know, I can give myself permission. I, I've been sober long enough that, that this won't really affect me. And then that downward spiral. And then it was the moment, the moment that, uh, you were supposed to have, a nice dinner with your wife and she tried calling you, you, you were unable to answer the phone. Mm -hmm. um, I know you don't want to tell your whole story, but could you just like tell that part of your story of like what happened? Because I, I want to kind of merge this also into how your, how your wife dealt with all this and, and how, how she's kind of come into her own path of healing and, and recovery and reestablishing trust with you. But, but that moment that she was trying to call you, I mean, do you mind telling that part of your story? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so right before we got married, we met some uh, really great friends in the church. And a lot of people don't understand the disease of addiction. And they don't, also don't understand what the recovery process is. A lot of people are still under the impression that you go to a few meetings, you go to a 28-day treatment, you work the 12 steps, you graduate, and they're going to teach you how to drink like a gentleman. Honestly, that's what I thought when I first went to my meeting. I was like, you guys are going to teach me how to drink the right way because apparently I'm not doing it correctly. Um, and, and what happened is I got a little sobriety under my belt. Life started going good. I was working a decent job. Rachel and I were happy. Uh, and, you know, a couple of people said, you know, I'm sure I'm sure things weren't that bad. You know, you're, you're going to church now. You know, you're giving your life over to Christ. You know, I'm sure you can have a couple of beers and control it. And after having a conversation with my wife, not knowing as much about addiction back then as she does today, we agreed, okay, cool, let's try having a couple of beers. And I had a couple of beers and the first time, first couple of times I did it, it wasn't that bad, but it wasn't long before those couple of beers brought back the feeling that I used to have when I would drink. And unfortunately for me, it's not the eighth or the ninth drink that's the problem, it's the first one. 
Because when I have one drink, I cannot guarantee you with any sort of certainty when I will have my next one or when I will have my last one. And unfortunately for me, a lot of times when it's when I end up in jail or hand uh, or in the ICU, right? So we were, um, she was in nursing school at the time. And um, at that time, I think I was in between jobs. And so I was kind of at a little bit of a low point. And I was, um, you know, drinking a lot and I was taking a lot of pills. And uh, it was just a regular Friday night. And my sister was out of town. We were renting a small basement apartment, uh, a townhouse. I mean, it was like 500 square feet. It was really small. Yeah. Um, but we made it work for what we needed. My sister lives in a big corner house in a nice suburban area. She was going out of town with her family. And she's like, if you guys want to come hang out of my house and cook in my kitchen and watch my big TV, go ahead. So um, I went over to her house while my wife was still at work. And um, she uh, was just getting off work. I was supposed to be at the house cooking, uh, making a nice dinner for her. Uh, unfortunately, in the height of my addiction, one of my favorite uh, hobbies was going through other people's medicine cabinets. Uh, and I hate, to, I hate to say it like that playfully, but the reality is that's exactly what it was. It was a hobby for me. It was almost a game. Like if I was in your house during that part of my life, I was going to deceptively find a way to get into your cabinets to see if I can find an orange bottle with a white top. Um, Cause there might be a pill in there that, I, that I'm really interested in. And I had a good feeling that my sister probably had some laying around. My sister's not an addict. She never had any problems with addiction. Um, but I know there you know, been some procedures and stuff done. And you know, most people don't throw those things out. They put them in the back of the cabinet for a rainy day. Went to my sister's house, found what I was looking for took some, opened up another cabinet, found some more, took some, a lot of liquor, took some. I don't really remember what happened that night. My wife would call me every single night when she would get off of work just to kind of as a courtesy, hey, honey, I'm coming home. Okay, cool, I'll have dinner ready in 20. Um, but that night I didn't answer the phone. Um, when she pulled up to the house, she saw my car outside. If I was her, she's probably thinking, okay, maybe Sammy drank too much and blacked out or maybe he's just napping because he's depressed, whatever, right? She comes in the house. She's calling my name. She doesn't hear anything. Then she finally looks in the living room and I was slumped over in the chair. And all she heard from me was kind of a gasping for air, um, basically taking my last breaths because I had overdosed on pain pills and alcohol. Um, she panicked like any loving wife would. Uh, she actually ran across the street to get one of the neighbors that she knew, um, just screaming, screaming, call 911. Sammy's not breathing. Uh, they ran back over to the house together. They took turns. Give, they pulled me off of the chair and they put me on the floor. Uh, they took turns giving me CPR until the medics could arrive. Medics arrived. Cops show up. Uh, they gave me four large four IVs, one in each arm, one in each leg. Um, they gave me two doses of Narcan. All that did apparently was cause me to vomit. Um, in the back of their ambulance. Um, I read, and the only reason I know any of this is because I read the report. I don't remember anything. I have no memories of that night except waking up in the ICU. Um, I presented at the hospital with the cerebral posturing. Uh, if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's basically when your limbs are kind of turned in and your body is stiff. Um, it's usually a sign of brain damage. Uh, they put a tube down my throat and put me in the ICU uh, and then pretty much looked at my wife and said, we don't know if your husband's gonna wake up. Um, my blood alcohol level was very high. My liver enzymes were three times what they should have been from trying to process all the pills that I took. 
Um, I think I spent somewhere between 12 and 18 hours in the ICU uh, until I finally woke up. And I remember uh, three things. I remember choking on my tube and biting it. Um, and then I also remember being handcuffed to the gurney because the reason they do that is because everybody, the first inclination is to reach up and grab your tube. They don't want you to do that. Yeah. And then I remember hearing my wife saying, honey, honey, it's okay. You're in the hospital. You overdosed. Um, and I just, I, I, I was just in shock. I was like, but, but how, like, I wasn't trying to kill myself that night. Like we talked about earlier, I was just trying to get out of right here before my wife got home. And that night I severely missed the mark. Um, and, and I knew it's interesting because every single day prior to that, the first thought on my mind when I would wake up would be something to the effect of when am I going to drink today or where are my pills coming from? First thought every day. That's the first time. And I can't remember how long that that was not the first thought on my mind when I woke up and I knew that God saved my life that night for a reason. And I'm so grateful that he did because I didn't want to die. I just needed a little bit of help learning how to live again. So would you say that that was kind of the moment that um, your recovery as a couple started that, that like, you know, the, the turning point of, okay, now there's some things in our marriage we need to approach. Um, she was like, I, I need to talk about some things, work, work through some things. You definitely need to get back into working through some things. Um, did it cause uh, a divide in your marriage? I mean, did, did she stay supported the whole time? Did I, I guess where where did the kind of the relationship go after that? Because I mean that that's a very traumatic experience. What what kind of impact did that have? Uh, it was very traumatic. So for her to come home and find her husband like that, um, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. Right. Um, I would be dead literally and figuratively if not for Rachel. Um, I, I don't know what I would do without her. Where I would be without her. Um, it was a long road. Um, she loved me. Leaving me was never on the table. We took the vows that we took together at the altar very seriously. Um, she knew that it was time for us to recover. And uh, I ended up uh, signing myself into an intensive outpatient program. They call it IOP. And I met with a wonderful counselor. Her name was Kim. And Kim was also a Christian. So she talked a lot of Christianity in our counseling. And I did this through the county and it was a really good thing that I did because they did it kind of on a sliding scale because at the time I was uninsured, which was a huge help. Um, but the other thing that Kim did for us, which I think really in a lot of ways saved us um, in more way than one, um, she saw my wife under my case one-on-one. Um, -on -one. So I was doing my counseling and Rachel was doing her counseling, um, but then she also saw us as a couple. Okay. And that's where I really try to make sure that people understand, like, we didn't just wake up one day and brush this off and rub some dirt on it and act like nothing happened and kiss each other and say, okay, we're just going to stay married now. Like it, it was work. Like yeah. I did my counseling. She did her counseling. We did our counseling. Um, and, and what we realized was that when I relapsed, my wife would relapse too. My wife's not a drinker. She's not an addict, but she would relapse in different areas of her life. You know, she would kind of slack off her spirituality, her physical fitness, maybe get a little bit more lackadaisical. Um, and we realized that no matter where in our recovery process that we were, that we were always in it together. And that stood true back then, which was January 18th, 2013. 
and it stands true today. Um, she stands by my side 100% with everything that I do uh, from, you know, stepping away from the traditional 12-step program to going to church, to working out with me, uh, to supporting my career when I have to go travel and I'm on the road and I'm away from her and the kids for three, four, five days at a time um, because she knows what a pivotal part of my recovery that is. And she knows that my recovery is also her recovery is also our recovery. Just to, just to add on to that a little bit. So um, I, I love the fact that you brought up, you know, like you, you had made these vows, you had made these promises to each other. Uh, there's the kind of relationship that says, no matter what, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to this. I'm, I'm going to stick with you. Uh, and that can evolve into, okay, but seriously, if things don't change, like I, I might have to actually step away to, to show you how serious I am about how much I care about you. And then beyond that goes to, okay, you're obviously not getting the, getting the hint. Um, and, and you're not taking this seriously. You're not taking, uh, us seriously as a couple. And that's usually when the divorce happens or, uh, or a physical, at least a, a physical separation that could lead to a divorce. So I, I feel like that's kind of the evolution of, and, and I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, it, it didn't even get to that. I, I guess, did it get to a point of any sort of separation? You no, said it didn't. The only right? time okay. we separated was before we got married per our pastor's request. Cause right. we were living together yeah. and she actually moved out and uh, moved in with a friend uh, for a few months prior to us getting married. And after she said, I do, then we moved back in together. But okay. after that, uh, we've never separated. I'm not going to say and spend a few nights on the couch, right? But, right. <laughs> <laughs> as anybody might assume, but no, right. we've never even. Uh, we don't even. We don't joke about the rules. You know, it's not. It's not an option. For right. Um, the only thing that we've ever come across during a group counseling session, and this has never happened, but obviously, being the good counselor she was, she asked. If there was ever any harm, uh, if there was any ever threat of physical harm to her or my kids due to my drinking and using, that's when we can entertain the idea of a separation until I get help. But that has never happened. And I never foresee that happening. Awesome. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's not something we joke about. And that's why we wrote the book together. I want people to see that not only can the individual recover, but the family can too. We've been happily married over 11 years now. I've got three beautiful kids that never have to see the disaster that is drugs and alcohol when it comes to what it does to a person. Um, and, and I want to continue to, to be a, a beacon of light for somebody else, whether it's an individual or couple that might be struggling and just say, like, if you're willing to put in the work, everybody can recover. Well, and, and it and it shows the the fact that support in a marriage doesn't always come in terms of, well, no matter what stupid things you do, I'm going to, I'm going to stand by your side and say, it's okay. Support comes in ways of, um, I, I'm going to do what I need to do to heal. You do what you need to heal. We will do what we need to do to heal. Mm -hmm. Um, and there, there's going to be boundaries that I put in place because I love you. There's going to be changes made because we love each other. And that's the kind of work that, that you're talking about is like, you know, my, my wife talked about that all the time. She felt like for her to get upset with me and uh, create a boundary would have been pushing me away. And that was just like, that was just kind of the understanding until she finally started seeing a counselor and figuring out like, oh, wait, for me to show him um, that I do care about him 
it might be necessary to ask him to leave. It might be necessary to put down these boundaries and say, look, uh, for you to show me that you love me, you have to treat me better. You have to, you have to not do these things. You can't be unfaithful to me anymore. Like, because I'm going to leave if that happens. Your, your wife just sounds like she's awesome and super supportive in the right ways. And you know, that, that she's strong enough to say what, what her needs are and what's okay and what's not okay. And that's, that's, what's important without just throwing around. And I, I love that you pointed that out without throwing around the, the divorce word, like it's a common everyday threat. Like I, I hear about that. And, and I, I, I have friends that talk about how, like, I'll do like, well, if I do this, she'll, she might just divorce me. It's like, that, like, like you said, that's not funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an okay thing to joke that. about because that yeah. means you're you're already even as a joke entertaining the idea that divorce is an option that you can take at any time. And I'm but, not going to say in moments of heated heated discussion or heated argument, one of us haven't hasn't said it. But when we said it, we realized what we said and how it made us and the other person feel, and that almost immediately turned everything around because we realized like that's that's not us that's not where we want to go with yes. this you know we're 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 happily married we still happily fight we still happily disagree we still lovingly lovingly get through those situations together um we still have open and honest conversations about the these are my needs these are your needs they might differ a little bit how can we meet in the middle because as you grow older with somebody the way that you act changes, the way that you feel changes, the things that you need from life and from your partner change a little bit. And if you're not open and, and you don't communicate about those things, how can anybody know? Like I, I see so yeah. many, so many marriages end in divorce simply because they didn't talk. Like people, you need to understand your spouse isn't a mind reader and neither are you. Yeah. You know? So if you're not willing to be open about certain, about everything really, where do you expect the marriage to go? Well, and I, and I love that you pointed out that you lovingly get through those challenges together, that you lovingly disagree and fight because that doesn't mean you happily do it. You know, it's not like, oh, I, I really yeah, love no, fighting with my spouse, but you do it with love. Do, but... And and I, I think that's such a, a fantastic distinction that it's like, you can be unhappy at times and struggling with certain situations while still having that love and respect toward that other person. And I think that's a great thing. We have lovingly fought on the way out of the house going to church. Yeah. But we still went to, but we still went to church. We might've been pissed at each other, but we still went, you know? Yeah. And no, I, the I, fact that we I still that. continue to do those little things, even if and when we are bickering with each other, that allows us to come back around full circle and realize like, at the end of the day, I, I just want to snuggle and grab your butt and hold hands. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's Absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Last thing I want to talk about before I, before I let you go, what you're doing as work is honestly like, dude, someday, like I, I watch what you're doing. I'm like, oh man, someday if I could do that, 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 that's a, uh, that's a not yet for me. You asked in your book, like, <laughs> write, write down one, uh, a negative, not yet. And a positive, not yet. Uh -huh that positive not yet is, is what you're doing with your life right now to be able to awesome. go to these places, share your story with the intention of be, of having an impact for good in the lives of, especially the youth of today, because there's mm -hmm. so much misinformation and confusion going on in the world right now that it's like, 
people need to hear messages for good. They need to hear that there is, there's hope when they make them, when they make mistakes, that there is a possibility to say, I'm sorry and, and move forward from there. Um, and that even if they do make big mistakes, that that doesn't have to define them, that messing up does not have to be their identity, that they are not a screw up because they screwed up. So uh, tell me, tell us a, a little bit about, um, what what you're currently doing and and what you love about it what's been some maybe some cool experiences that you've had with it uh so currently i'm a professional speaker i travel all across the u.s i'll speak anywhere i'm invited um typically to middle school and high school students i also do nonprofit organizations conferences uh youth groups um teen institutes and faith-based organizations and i talk about substance use and suicide prevention uh, along with knowing your self-worth. And the title of the keynote that I deliver is, we all have something in common. And what I mean by that is, if there's one thing that I've learned to do over the years is take my ordinary problems and share them extraordinarily well so I don't have to suffer in silence. And when I say that, I usually pause for a second because I might offend somebody because I just call their problems ordinary. But if you look up the definition of ordinary, ordinary simply means common. And to anybody out there listening right now, I'm sorry that what happened to you when you were a little kid is common. I'm sorry that your parents got divorced is common. I'm sorry that the self-harm that you're inflicting right now is common. I'm sorry that your eating disorder is common. I'm sorry that your problem with pornography is common. I'm sorry that the addiction and the depression and the anxiety and the bullying and the smoking and the drinking is common, but it is. And I actually start to ask questions and say, if you yourself or you know anybody, self-harm, stand up. If you yourself or you know somebody struggles with suicide or suicidal ideation, stand up. Bullying, anxiety, depression. I usually only have to ask about five or six things to get a room of about a thousand people on their feet. Hmm. And I say, see, we all have something in common. And right next to you is the common problem is also the common solution because do you have any idea how much power there would be if everybody in this room who walked in today who thought that they were the only one going through this right now and that nobody would understand what i'm dealing with or how i feel or what's happening to me if we actually started to talk about it and normalize it and take the stigma out of it because at the end of the day it is never too late to ask for help to offer help or to accept help um, and, you know, that's what I do. I just travel and I try to use my experience as a lesson for somebody else. Um, when I first started speaking like that video that you watched on Facebook five years ago, I pretty much just shared my story. And while my story might be cool and entertaining, my story in and of itself is not really going to help anybody. So now I make sure it's this is the piece of the story. This is the experience that was in that story. This is the lesson and the takeaway for the person that's listening. Do you feel the way I felt? Do you think the way I thought? Do you do the things that I did? And if you can answer yes to any of those questions, how can you make a change right now so you don't go down the same path that I did? And as long as I still continue to get DMs, like the ones that I'm getting and kids coming up to me and telling me the things that they're telling me, I'm going to continue to speak because I've been to the largest districts and the smallest districts, the biggest and the smallest, the most rich and the most poor, the most unique and the most diverse. I have not been on a single campus where I have not had a kid come up to me and tell me that they're using, that they're self-harming, that they know somebody that's died by suicide. And, and it's, I remember the first time a kid came up to me and told me he was thinking about killing himself, how numb it made me. 
and how, how I couldn't focus for the rest of the day and how it's all I was able to think about. And now I hear it so often. It's, I'm just kind of like, uh, I'm numb to the idea of like kids are feeling like this. And I mean, some schools have excellent resources and some can use a little bit more, but whether it's you, Cameron, going in and telling your story and your experience, which is different than mine, or me going in, or the person after me going in, they're going to relate to us different than they're going to relate to their parents or their counselor. And my job is not to go there and fix them. My job is to go there and to get them to utilize the resources they have at their disposal because their resources mean nothing if they don't use them. That's great if you have 10 counselors in your school building, but if your kids aren't actually going into the counselor's office, what good are they? So if I can break down their barrier by getting them to relate to some of my experience and actually say that now's the time that I need to step up and ask for help before something that happened to Sam happens to me, then that's why I go to a school. And honestly, I get paid pretty well to do what I do. But at the end of every keynote that I give, I offer the kids a challenge. And this challenge was actually inspired by a student that I met in Litchfield, Illinois. And I spoke at, um, I think it was Litchfield High. And afterwards, I got a message from a student. Apparently, something I said inspired them. And they sent me a DM saying that they went home and they threw away all the tools that they were using to self-harm. And I actually take that DM and I put it up on the screen and I challenge the students. I say, are you willing to be as brave as this young lady was? Would you be willing to go home and toss your vape or delete the videos on your computer or throw away the tools that you're using to self-harm or talk to your counselor or your parents about your eating disorder? And I challenge them, number one, to do it. But if you are willing to do it, don't do it by yourself. And, you know, the, the checks and the honorariums that I get from schools, they keep the lights on. They put diapers on their kids. They put food on the table. I would give back every single check to get one more DM like that. And I'm happy to say that those DMs keep coming in. And as long as the DMs keep coming in, I'm going to keep traveling. I'm going to keep speaking because obviously there's still kids that need to be reached. Dude, it's just, you're doing so much good. And, uh, and, and I totally relate with you in, in terms of like, when you hear, or when, when someone just takes a second to almost validate the purpose that God has given you, that, that you're like, that you can, you know, say your prayers at the end of the day and say, thank you for putting this person in my path. Thank you for, for allowing me to be the voice that caused them to decide to change. And even if that change doesn't stick for, for a moment and later on down in their life, they're going to remember that moment. They're going to say, no, there was a point that I, that I didn't want to do drugs. There was a point that I remember this guy coming and speaking, or I, or I remember this mentor, or I had this friend or this guy that I spoke to that shared their story. And because of that, um, it reminded me of what my values are and what I stand for and what's important to me. And, and that is something that will last them a lifetime. It also made me think of one more little part in your book where you talked about how you're, you're, there were two types of parents, the parents who uh, didn't know and the, the parents that didn't want to know. Is that what it was? So I said, there's two types of parents. The first parent is kind of like the, not my kid parent that they think their kid is great. And right, right. You know, my kid's not going to experience the depression or get bullied or experiment with alcohol. And the other parent just has no idea. 
And yeah. my parents fit equally into both categories. They never thought for one second that Sam was going to go into the liquor cabinet and take a drink when he was 12. Yeah. But after I did, they had no idea. And if they did, they had no idea on what to do. So, so I, I had, uh, I had some parents, uh, recently talk to me about what, what their, what their child was going through. And, um, I thought it was going to be about pornography use and that they had found stuff on a computer. And like, I was totally prepared for this and it turned out it was, it was, uh, started with vaping and then marijuana and drugs might be getting involved. And so I, I guess what I would ask from you is what, what would you say to those parents in order to best help their children, um, to, to not be those kinds of parents that either don't believe that their kids could do it or that just have no idea. Uh, be more involved in your, in your kid's life, ask questions. Don't settle for I'm fine as an answer. Uh, don't allow them to isolate. Um, you know, be present with them. Like when you're with them at the dinner table, be present, ask, ask them to say more about their day and what's going on. And if you do realize there's a problem and they don't want to talk to you, that's fine. They don't have to talk to you, but they do have to talk to somebody because at the end of the day, you're only as sick as your secrets and your job is to be their parent. Okay. You don't have to be their counselor. You know, I hear parents, kids say all the time that, oh, well, my parent doesn't understand. That's okay. Your parent doesn't have to understand. Your parent's not a licensed counselor. Your parent yeah. is your parent. Your mom is your mom. And I, I see the same thing amongst relationships too. Well, my boyfriend doesn't understand what I'm going through. Your boyfriend's not a counselor or a therapist the last time I checked. He's your boyfriend. That's okay if he doesn't understand about your depression. He should he's know about it. it. He <laughs> should know about it, but he doesn't have to be the one to treat it. There's yeah. a difference, you know? So um, yeah, to the parents that have the kids that they thought might be, might never be the ones, just realize that when it comes to things like self-harm and pornography and addiction and eating disorders and alcoholism and bullying, it doesn't discriminate. I don't care what side of town you grew up on, how much money you have or don't have, how strong you are, what's, what religion you are, how spiritual you are, how many push-ups you did that day. It doesn't discriminate. I mean, I've seen the kid that looks like the kid, like, yeah, the kid looks like he has some problems. And then I've seen the kid like you would never think, you know, I had a kid come up to me once and, and it was after a high school presentation. And honestly, I took one look at him and I was like, dude, I would have been so jealous of you in high school. He was like captain of the wrestling team, perfect part in his hair, perfect jawline, yeah. perfect complexion. And he's telling me he's thinking about killing himself. It doesn't discriminate. Yeah. You know? And don't ever think that it does. Don't think that it can't happen to you. Sam, thank you. Thank you for uh, thank you for sharing this message. Thank, thanks for uh, taking the time to, to be on here. Just to kind of echo your last remarks that you're only as sick as your secrets. Talk to someone, talk, talk to, talk to anyone. Um, and, and also with that understanding that, you know, they, they're not a licensed therapist, but if you need to talk to someone, talk to anyone. And then from that point, then you can start talking to someone that can help you. Um, but, but don't suffer in silence. Don't go through this alone. Don't think that it's, and, and don't think that, you know, you deserve to suffer. None of us deserve to suffer. None of us, none of us deserve, uh, the, the pain that we experience because of the mistakes that we made. We're human. Like you said, we make mistakes. That doesn't mean that we need to beat ourselves up for the rest of our lives over or think that we're unworthy of love because of those mistakes. And so, I, I, I love the message that you have. I love what you're doing with your life. And I, I love the impact it's having with other people. So thank you for allowing that message to be shared on this platform and, uh, and providing that spirit here as well. 
My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. And if I could just leave your listeners with one thing, please do just remember that life is hard. Okay. Everything that you're going to do is hard. You know, I, I, as a personal trainer, I try to advise people to, you know, work out and go to the gym and eat. Oh, but it's it's hard to get up at 5am and go to the gym every day. It's hard to walk a mile. It's hard to eat. You're right. It is hard. It's also very hard to be overweight and out of shape and not happy with yourself because you're tired and lethargic all the time or your back hurts. Well, it's hard to go to meetings five days a week. It's hard to call a sponsor. It's hard to get off the pills. You're right, it is. It's also hard to hustle and lie and steal and cheat and get drunk and high and manipulate everybody in your life. You know, well, it's hard to talk to somebody about my feelings and my depression. You're right. It's also hard to cover up the marks that you have on your arms out of guilt and shame. Life is going to be hard. It's up to you. You have to choose your heart. Love that. Choose your heart. Couldn't have said it better myself. And on that, um, yeah, we're we're gonna end it there because that was just that's phenomenal. Okay. Cool. All right. I thanks for having me, man. Thank yeah. you. Thanks everyone for joining us. And we will uh we'll catch you next week on Recovering You. Remember, your story is unique and can make a huge difference in the lives of others. If you feel the desire to share your story on Recovering You, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at recoveryu2 at gmail.com with the number two. Or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash recovering you podcast. That's facebook.com forward slash recovering you podcast. <laughs>